Welcome to another episode of Ninja Nerd. Today we're going to be talking about hyperkalemia. Guys, check out ninjanerd.org. Grab your notes and illustrations. Follow along with us as we go through this. We're using the appendix, uh, page 11 of our hyperkalemia notes to go through this whole entire uh, topic, just to make sure that we got all the high yield uh, types of things we got to know, okay? So Zach, what do you got to say? <laughs> well, hyperkalemia is a son of a gun. Um, probably regularly encountered, I feel like. Um, especially in those patients working in critical care or working in the hospital. or So you're definitely going to see this. So it's really important to know. So I think one of the big things to start off with first when we talk about hyperkalemia is just understanding some of the causes. So whenever you see a patient who you order some routine lab work on them or some daily labs and you get a BMP back and it comes back saying, oh, my gosh, their K is seven. You want to f- first kind of like figure out, OK, well, obviously we're going to treat this and we got to look for any kind of like symptomatic issues with hyper K. But it's important to kind of start thinking about what kind of cause this, because obviously you can temporarily treat their hyper K. But what you have to figure out what caused this, because if I reverse that underlying cause, they'll be a little bit better and that hopefully be able to prevent them from developing hyperkalemia again. So first things first is I would actually go through, look and see if they have an acute kidney injury. I'd say this is one of the big ones. If a patient has an acute kidney injury, that could definitely be affecting their ability to, uh, you know, excrete potassium into the urine. That's one thing. Also, do they have like chronic kidney disease, um, like in stage? If they have like in stage renal disease where they're basically not making any urine as it is, um, and their kidneys are basically not functioning very well, they're not going to be able to excrete that potassium. So look for acute kidney injury. Look for chronic kidney disease. I say that's a really, really big one. Um, Hypoaldosteronism, you could definitely consider this one. I would not go to this one right away way. But think about this. If a patient has like hypoaldosteronism, they're not going to be making as much aldosterone. Aldosterone helps to reabsorb sodium and excrete potassium. So if you're not making enough of that, you're not going to reabsorb sodium. So they'll hyponatremia and also hyperkalemia. So think about that in a potential case like that. Um, drugs. I would think that this is actually going to be one of the really, really big ones here, Rob. So go through the medication list. Look, are they taking any NSAIDs? Are they taking any ACE inhibitors or ARBs? ACE inhibitors and ARBs are definitely like common offenders just because they inhibit, you know, the angiotensin receptor pathway. And so they definitely can increase the actual, um, uh, potassium development within inside of the blood. The other thing is potassium sparing diuretics like spironolactone or eplanone. Definitely look for those. So I'd say big thing. Look at the drug list. NSAIDs, ACE inhibitors, ARBs, and spironolactone. Those are going to be the big ones. The other thing is when it comes to like looking at the causes of hyperkalemia, I think you should kind of categorize it into a couple different areas. One is it's due to a reduced excretion of potassium. So that would be you're not getting potassium out of the body. And that's due to, like I said, acute kidney injury, or chronic kidney disease, hypoaldosteronism, or particular drugs. The other way that we can think about hyperkalemia when it comes to causes is, is there a, like a shifting of potassium between the cells and the extracellular fluid? So in other words, are we pushing potassium out of our cells and into the bloodstream or are we not kind of pushing potassium into the cells and we're just keeping it inside of the blood? So this would be due to like insulin problems. So if a patient isn't making insulin or they're having an insulin resistance of some kind with not having as much insulin, insulin works on those sodium potassium ATPases and it helps to be able to pump the potassium um, into the cell and then sodium out of the cell. If you you don't have insulin, you can't pump potassium into the cell. So potassium stays outside of the cell in the extracellular fluid and builds up in the blood. So look for that for your patients who have like type 1, type 2 diabetes. Other things is drugs. So drugs that basically, again, affect this transcellular shift. So I think beta blockers. Beta blockers is a big one. So they work by, again, acting on that sodium potassium ATP. So if they work to inhibit the beta 2 receptors, basically you're going to inhibit the potassium from being pumped into the cell. So potassium will build up in the blood, just like if you have an insulin deficiency. Um, acidosis. So if someone has like a metabolic acidosis for whatever particular reason, whenever you have a lot of acidosis in the blood, so your protons in the blood are higher, what happens is you shift the protons into the cell. 
to get less of it inside of the extracellular space, like the blood. And then when you push potassium, uh, protons, I'm sorry, into the cell, you have to put, push potassium out of the cell. And so if you have an acidosis, lots of protons are going to get taken up into your cell. And subsequently, lots of protons are going to be pumped out of the cell into the blood. So that could be another reason. So less insulin, beta blockers is a big one. Acidosis. Another drug actually that, I, that I'm thinking about is digoxin because digoxin also, just like beta blockers, inhibits the sodium potassium ATPase. So if you want to remember it like three particular ways, less insulin, beta blockers, digoxin are all going to inhibit the sodium potassium ATPase. That makes sure that you don't pump potassium into the cell and potassium will build up in the blood. Hyperosmolar states are kind of interesting. I'd say they're kind of like in the lower end, but something to think about. If patient is like super, super hyperosmolar, so they're relatively dehydrated is the way I think about this, is a patient has very little like uh, solvent inside of their blood and a lot of solute. This could be like hyperglycemic hyperosmolar uh, syndrome. So in a patient who has type 2 diabetes and they're having a lot of like sugar inside of their bloodstream, but very little water because they're urinating a lot of it out. Um other things could be due to excessive diuresis. So if you're giving a patient like furosemide and you're just diuresing and diuresing and diuresing them and getting ton of, rid of a ton of their actual blood volume, that could be another potential reason to put them into a hyperosmolar state. And when you put people in hyperosmolar states, you actually decrease the water outside of their vasculature, but that also decreases the potassium concentration outside of their cell. And so potassium is higher inside the cell than it is outside the cell. So it's going to want to go from areas of high concentration inside the cell to uh, lower, low concentration, which is outside the cell. So they'll move the potassium out of the cell and into the blood. The other thing I think is important to remember is rhabdomyolysis. So if you have a patient who has seizures or they were exerting themselves, like they're working at the gym like me and Rob and just going way too hard more than they should be or doing like an Ironman, <laughs> something like that, and they're just exerting their muscles in a particular way that they're popping open those skeletal muscle cells and releasing potassium and myoglobin to the urine, that'd be another particular thing to think about is rhabdomyolysis. So that's one. The other thing is if you have tumors, so a patient who has like lymphoma, leukemia, they have an oncologic emergency and they're just busting open some of their actual tumor cells for a particular reason. You're going to release out lots of potassium and, and uric acid and phosphate molecules as well. So things to be thinking about, especially after a patient received like chemotherapy. The other thing that I would think to remember here is any kind of damage to red blood cells, so hemolysis. So if a patient has hemolysis for whatever reason, whether it be like an autoimmune hemolytic anemia or some type of non-autoimmune hemolytic anemia, like an extrinsic cause or intrinsic cause, then you want to be thinking about. So if you're ripping open those red blood cells, not only are you releasing hemoglobin into the actual blood, but you're also going to be releasing potassium, which is accumulating inside the cells. So that's one particular reason to think about these. Okay, we got reduced excretion of potassium, Rob, right? And so when we talked about that, we talked about AKI, CKD, we talked about hypoaldosteronism, and then we talked about particular drugs like ACEs, ARBs, and spironolactone. We got transcellular shifting of potassium. So not letting potassium go into the cell or pushing potassium out of the cell into the blood. This is due to inhibiting the sodium potassium pumps. Three particular things, reduced insulin or no insulin, beta blockers and digoxin or acidosis where we're pushing protons in and potassium ions out. Hyperosmolar states such as like when a patient is hyperosmolar, hyperosmotic syndrome, um, hyperglycemic hyperosmolar syndrome, I apologize, and diabetic type two. Uh, and then also excessive diuresis from lots of Lasix. And then popping open cells, rhabdo from skeletal muscle, tumor cells, tumor lysis, and then popping open red blood cells, hemolysis. The third category that I would want you guys to remember for uh, having hyperkalemia is if there's an increase in potassium intake. So we're either not getting rid of it, we're shifting it, or we're taking in too much of it. And so this is probably like the least common one, but think about this if a patient is taking too much of a particular medication for, you know, hypoglycemia or they're eating tons of bananas or you're they're replacing their potassium and you don't calculate the potassium replacing correctly and you give them just too much potassium. So it could be one of those particular situations, but not too common. 
The next one is actually a really important one to actually rule out. If a patient has elevated potassium and it comes back on their BMP, don't just immediately say, oh, it's hyperkalemia. I want to also make sure that sometimes the lab will actually say, oh, the lab sample was hemolyzed. So during the actual blood draw, some of the red blood cells popped open and they released their potassium just due to like an increased tourniquet usage and the red blood cells lice. So what happens is they'll actually look again under the microscope and say, oh, this was a hemolyzed sample. You should be, you know, not actually be real. I would repeat another, you know, uh, BMP and just make sure. So generally, if you have a patient who has hyper K, look to see if the lab tech put down that it was a hemolyzed sample, repeat it. And then generally, if it wasn't hemolyzed anymore, it should come back normal. So that's called pseudo hyperkalemia. The last one is also think about this in patients who have severely high like platelet levels. Sometimes when you have like lots and lots and lots of platelets, going over like almost like a a million, generally this can release lots of potassium from their granules. And this can actually also cause uh, potentially like a pseudo hyperkalemia. So if someone has like an insane thrombocytosis, be thinking that it could actually be like a fake hyperkalemia. So it's a pseudo hyperkalemia. So these would be the particular causes I think to remember and the categories that we discussed, which is pseudo hyperkalemia, increased intake, transcellular shifting, or reducing the excretion of it, Rob. All righty. Sounds awesome. Thank you for that lovely summarization. Next thing we got to talk about, though, is clinical findings and diagnosis. Yeah. So whenever we talk about patients who have hyperkalemia, it's important to have a very thorough workup. So don't don't just like say, oh, they have hyperkalemia. Let's treat them. Let's get rid of the potassium, et cetera. Look for the causes that we talked about in those categories and then think about what particular labs would I want to order to rule out those causes? So think about it. We go back to the reduced excretion of potassium. So AKI, CKD, that's one thing. Hypoaldosteronism and particular drugs. What's the easy one that you could actually go through to figure out when it comes to like clinical findings and working through your diagnosis? Well, Look at their medication list. Are they taking an ACE inhibitor? Are they taking an ARB? Are they taking some type of um, potassium sparing diuretic? Guess what you could do? Get rid of it and see if their K improves. Other things for the acute kidney injury or the CKD is look at their actual GFR. What's their GFR? If it's chronic kidney disease and they do not have an AKI, if they have a very, very low GFR, that might be the particular reason. If they have an acute kidney injury, look for a low urine output, look for an increase in their BUN, look for an increase in their creatinine. But GFR is the particular way if they're not in an acute kidney injury to look for CKD over three plus months. And then if they have a high UBN, BUN creatinine, low urine output, and this is new, way worse than their baseline renal function, this could be an acute kidney injury. For hypoaldosteronism, it's actually pretty simple. Just send off an aldosterone level. But generally, whenever people have high, uh, sorry, whenever they have low aldosterone levels, this generally will actually trigger a uh, production of renin. So generally, what you'll look for is the plasma renin aldosterone level. And so you'll see that they have a high renin level and a low aldosterone level. And that could be diagnostic of hypoaldosteronism, primary. If they're, you know, a patient is, you go to the next category, which is the transcellular shifting. So think about particular clinical findings here. So if a patient has a decreased or they're not taking their insulin or they don't make insulin, look, do they have a history of type 1 diabetes, type 2 diabetes, and look at their glucose levels in the blood. So that could be one thing. And again, drugs, look at the medications. Are they on any beta blockers? Are they on any digoxin? Maybe decrease it or hold off on those medications. Check an ABG, check a BMP. Do they have an acidosis? So generally on their BMP, it'll show what their bicarb is. If their bicarb is low and you're concerned for an acidosis, you could follow up with an ABG to see what their actual true pH is. And if you see that they have an acidosis, that might be the cause of their actual true hyperkalemia. Look at their actual hyperosmolar state. So what's their glucose levels? Are they like a glucose of like 600? Well, well, that could be why they're super dehydrated and they got a very little blood volume. Or is it because they're hypovolemic? Are they a little hypotensive? Do they look very, very dry clinically? That could be another reason. Have you been giving them lots of diuretics? So those are things to think about as well. 
Rhabdo, I would definitely consider checking like a CK. Um, CKs will often be elevated in Rhabdo um, and also myoglobin when the urine will also be elevated. Tumor lysis syndrome is actually important just because you want to look for it. Not only increased potassium, but also increased phosphate, increased uric acid, and also low calcium as well. So look for that, particularly in those labs. And then if they have hemolysis, you'll also look for not just a low red blood cells. You'll also see that have an increase in their indirect bilirubin and um, their haptoglobin levels may be low. Whenever you're looking at potassium intake, just obviously look, look through the medication list. Have they got any potassium recently? Could that be why? Did they just eat like a hundred bananas? <laughs> so we took a good history. And then pseudohyperkalemia. Again, we already talked about that. Have the, uh, the pathologist or the, the, uh, the, the, particularly the, the lab to look under the microscope to see if they see any hemolyzed red blood cells from the sample of the BMP. If it was hemolyzed, just repeat it just to make sure that it actually was a pseudohyperkalemia. And then again, look at those platelet levels in your CBC to rule out that they don't have a thrombocytosis. I think some of the other things here to think about, Rob, is if a patient has hyperkalemia, how do we know if they're symptomatic versus non-symptomatic? It can be kind of relatively difficult to tell, but oftentimes we can remember the kind of clinical features based upon their mnemonic murder. There's been a murder. <laughs> There's been a murder in, in Savannah. Savannah. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to remember this, guys, I would think about M for muscle weakness, U for urine, particularly like oliguria, anuria, uh, R for respiratory distress, D for decreased cardiac contractility, E for EKG changes and R for reflexes. So particularly like decreased reflexes. So I think it's important that if you have a patient who has hyperkalemia, go to the bedside, examine. Do they have any weakness, some generalized muscle weakness? It's not usually focal. It's more generalized muscle weakness. Do they have any decreased urine output because they have an AKI, a CKD? Do they have any respiratory distress? Because again, whenever you have high K, it alters the depolarization of the actual skeletal muscle membranes. And that can lead to not just muscle weakness, but guess what? One of those muscles that controls breathing the diaphragm, so that's weak. You can also have respiratory distress. And then also potassium definitely alters the cardiac muscle tissue, the depolarization. So this can lead to decreased cardiac contractility and some nasty, nasty arrhythmias that you can see on the EKG. So that's important to remember. And then again, check those reflexes for decreased deep tendon reflexes. So that's how I would kind of go about the clinical findings and diagnosis, Rob. All right. So we're here at our, at our final part. We have one thing left to talk about, and that's the treatment. So what do we do for each type of cause and how do we go down that list and treat each one of them? Yeah. So whenever you have a patient who has hyperkalemia, I think oftentimes it's pretty straightforward. You don't have to just put a patient on hemodialysis right away, depending upon the level. But I think one of the first things is to obviously try to figure out how to intervene for these patients. So generally, the first thing that we're going to do is try to be able to excrete the potassium. So that's the, the best way. How can we excrete the potassium? Uh, we can do it two ways. We can either excrete it through the gut or we can excrete it uh, through the urine. So we can give somebody like what's called furosemide. So furosemide will give them a pretty decent like hefty dose of furosemide. And what the goal of that is, is to be able to excrete the potassium into the urine, eliminating potassium from the body. If for whatever reason they can't tolerate furosemide, maybe they're completely anuric or they're in-stage renal disease or they're already hypotensive or they're hypovolemic and they just wouldn't be able to tolerate that or they have other like massive electrolyte abnormalities and you can't do furosemide, then you can consider something called chiaxalate or sodium polystyrene. And what it does is it basically binds, um, it's a molecule that actually helps to be able to bind up potassium within the GIT and help to eliminate uh, the potassium through the GIT. So you'd poop out the potassium. So you can either poop out the potassium with chiaxalate or sodium polystyrene or you can pee the potassium out with furosemide. So that's the first thing that I would do to eliminate potassium from the body. 
The other things we could do is we could try to shift potassium. So we can shift potassium into the actual cells and out of the blood. And so ways that we can do that is giving them insulin. So you give them a pretty hefty dose of insulin, sometimes like 10 units per kg of insulin. And then on top of that, uh, or generally like you actually give them like a 10 unit bolus, I'm sorry, 10 unit bolus, 10 units of bolus per kg, that would be an insane amount. So give them like a 10 unit bolus of insulin. And then oftentimes you're going to give it with like D50 because if you, if you have a patient who's like on the verge of like euglycemia or hypoglycemia, if you give them insulin and no glucose to counteract that, it's definitely going to make them hypoglycemic and drop their sugar level. So if they're already kind of like in the hypoglycemic range or euglycemic range, give them D50 and give them the uh, insulin to be able to push the potassium into the cells. Because you think about it, if you give insulin, that's going to stimulate the sodium potassium ATPases. That's going to push the potassium into the cell. The other things that we can also do here is we can also push potassium by giving something that acts on the beta-2 receptors. So remember that beta blockers inhibit the sodium potassium pumps. If I give a beta agonist, that would stimulate the sodium potassium ATPase, pushing potassium into the cell. So I can give people like pretty heavy doses of albuterol, and albuterol help to be able to push the potassium into the cells. Other thing is if a patient is acidosis and only if they are acidotic, um, so a pH like less than like 7.2 or 7.15, you can consider giving them bicarbonate, like maybe an amp or two of bicarbonate, like 50 milli equivalents or one amp of bicarbonate and seeing what they do with that. Um, but oftentimes that'll help because if you tie up some of those protons that are in the blood, you're going to reduce the proton entry into the cell and reduce the potassium exit or efflux out of the cell. So that'll help to be able to prevent a lot of that movement of potassium out of the cell. So again, that's what I would do to shift the potassium. Insulin D50, beta agonists like albuterol, and then bicarbonate only if they're acidotic, excrete it with furosemide or chiaxylate sodium polystyrene. The next thing is you have to be careful because you definitely cause a lot of problems. When you have hyper-K, you can cause a lot of arrhythmias. So this can definitely lead to like, you know, changes in their QRS complex. It can cause changes in their PR interval. It can cause changes in their QT interval. It can actually cause like a really like nasty arrhythmia. It can even break down to what's called a cytosoidal rhythm that can break down into like V-fib. So it's important to make sure that you're stabilizing their cardiac membranes. And so oftentimes whenever a patient is having EKG changes, we see concerning findings like, on their actual EKG that's suggestive of really nasty hyperkalemia, I would consider giving these patients um, calcium gluconate or calcium chloride because it's going to stabilize those cardiac membranes. So stabilize cardiac membranes with calcium gluconate or calcium chloride, excrete it with furosemide or chiaxylate or sodium polystyrene is the other name, shift it into the cells with insulin, albuterol, and then if they're acidotic, bicarbonate. The only other thing is if a patient is completely not responding to all of these medical therapies or they are completely aneuric or they're acidotic, they're volume overloaded in some particular way, and you're just not going to be able to do this with medical therapy, then I would move on to dialysis. So dialysis would be an indication if they have a refractory hyperkalemia um, to medical therapy or if for some reason you can't perform some of the medical therapy because of contraindications to it, then I would do dialysis. And then depending upon the dialysis, depends upon their hemodynamics. So if their hemodynamic stable, they could tolerate a lot of shifts within their fluids. So you can do something like intermittent hemodialysis. But if they're relatively hypotensive, they're not super hemodynamically uh, stable, you can consider where they take small fluids off throughout the entire day, uh, like continuous renal replacement therapy. So those would be the things that I would consider in a patient who has hyperkalemia, Rob. All righty. Well, that's it. That's another episode for the Ninja Nerd Podcast. We have finished hyperkalemia and uh, we're excited to do another one and, and just keep doing this and hopefully you guys are all learning from it a lot yeah i hope you guys like these uh you know podcasts i keep i keep wanting to say videos rob it's like it's, it's, <laughs> it's like automatic it's i automatic. know but i i really hope that you guys are liking it we try to make sure that we go through this in, in a way that 
makes sense. It's comprehensive. It's an augmentation of the whiteboard videos. So if you guys are like driving to school, if you're working out, if you're just relaxing and you don't really want to watch an hour long video, you sit down, you grab the notes, you listen to the podcast, and hopefully you guys gain something out of this. So I appreciate it, engineers. I love you guys. Thank you. And as always, until next time. Mm-hmm.